Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I am C.B. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Mari Coates about her just-released novel, The Pelton Papers. The American artist Agnes Pelton combined a rich sense of color with an abstract symbolism perfectly suited to the Western desert, where she eventually made her home. Because she spent much of her career in small communities, she was not well known during her lifetime, but as it happens, a major exhibition Agnes Pelton, Desert Transcendentalist, has been put together and is right now at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York City, where Pelton spent most of her childhood. Because of the response to the coronavirus pandemic, the museum is currently closed to the public, but the exhibition will continue until June 28, 2020. In the meantime, you can find out more about it at whitney.org. Mariko's new novel opens near the end of Pelton's life. Cathedral City, California January 3rd, 1961. Draw a line from Stuttgart, where I was born, a child lured by beauty. Circle the cities in Europe where my mother took me while my father traveled. And then, in my seventh year, arc it over the ocean to Brooklyn, where we settled at last with my grandmother. My parents had met in Europe, a pair of expatriates, each temporarily liberated from a family tragedy. My father, from a fine southern family, was orphaned early and decamped to the continent to find himself. My mother's circumstances were more complicated. She had intruded upon her mother and their family minister, found them in a compromising position, and frightened had told her father about it. This unleashed a scandal that led to a very public trial in New York at which she was forced to testify. Afterward, my shattered mother was sent to Germany to resume her music studies, where she met and married my father and where I was born in 1881. Imagine my parents groping their way around Europe with me in tow, a sickly, fussy child, my mother's imminent concert career halted before it began by overwork as a student. They called it frozen hands. Think of it. After all she'd been through, her life's dream destroyed by overzealous teaching at the conservatory. My father, sensitive and moody, undertook long, exhausting walking tours, leaving my mother with me in random hotels. Eventually, he would limp back to us, and she then had both of us to try to nurse to health. And now, please join me in welcoming Mari Coates. Hi, Mari. I look forward to talking with you today. Hi, Carolyn. How are you? I'm good, thanks. You have been an arts writer, a theater critic, and a senior editor at an academic press. How does writing fiction fit into that path? Well, it's kind of a a long story. I hope it's not too convoluted, but um, my first love, really, as as a feeling of vocation was poetry in high school, and I wanted desperately to be a poet. And when I learned, nobody taught poetry the way they do now. So there was no sense of finding your own 
voice or anything like that. I just read poets, and since I wasn't T.S. Eliot, I was terribly discouraged and sort of sort of dropped it. And then I fell in love with theater, and I wanted to be in theater. I, I thought, oh, poetry is just too, it's too much of a lonely thing. I want to be with people. I want to play with people. I want to do things together. And so, um, so I, I started going into theater and, um, and really loved it. I, I didn't get very far with it, but, um, but I loved it. And, um, I did that for about 10 years and, um, they say in theater, and I believe it's true, that if you have to do this, then do it as long as you have to do it. If there's anything else that you could do instead, that's the time to step away from it. So I moved from New York where I lived. I lived near New York all my life and then moved into the city after college and I moved from New York to Los Angeles, uh, which was a shock to the system because um, I was still I was getting most of my work uh, in in TV things like television commercials and little bit things in TV. And so I went to L.A. and I had a friend who was a story uh, executive at a movie studio and he gave me um, a book. And he said, I think you'd be good at this. Write me a, um, a summation of the book and tell me what you think, whether it would make a good movie. So I started doing that and loved it. I loved the analytical part of it. And I started getting into story then. And I just fell in love with story. And um, I did that for quite a while. And um, then when I moved to San Francisco, I wanted to start doing, a, I wanted to do playwriting. And I signed up for a class that uh, was taught by someone I had heard great things about. And um, only she wasn't teaching playwriting anymore. Her strategy in life was to teach what she was interested in learning herself. So she was teaching fiction writing. And I thought, oh, oh, well, okay, I'll do that. And so I started this class. There were probably a dozen of us sitting in a circle in her living room. And she kind of took us on little, little meditation things and then had us write. And the first couple of classes were kind of not very interesting to me. And I thought, eh, oh, well. And on the third class, she had us, she, she started us with closing our eyes and bringing someone into our, our minds and seeing that person in, in their space. And to my great surprise, my grandmother was there. And she was, I was looking over her, I was behind her and kind of looking down at her in her chair, a chair that I remembered in an apartment that I remembered from being from being a very small child, I remembered this place. And I was fascinated because I knew what she was thinking. And I I just wrote down what she was thinking and how she was feeling. And that was it. I was a fiction writer from that day on. 
What a marvelous story. And it fits right into my next question, which is about Agnes Pelton, because you have a family connection there, too, you mentioned in on your website. Yep, that's right. Agnes and my grandparents, that grandmother, were great friends. Um, Agnes uh, first knew my grandfather in New York. They were neighbors in Brooklyn. And they both belonged to a very conservative little religious sect called the Plymouth Brethren. And this was out of, there was a great scandal with Agnes's grandmother, Elizabeth Tilton. And she had uh, a clandestine affair with the famous then preacher, Henry Ward Beecher. He was the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote, of course, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And um, Henry Ward Beecher was a charismatic preacher, and he and Elizabeth's husband, Theodore, were very active with the abolitionist movement, and Theodore was often off lecturing all over the Midwest and leaving Elizabeth at home with her children, many children, six, five or six, something like that and the oldest of whom turned out to be Agnes's mother. But Elizabeth uh, was seduced by Henry Ward Beecher, and um, when her husband found out about it, it wasn't, it wasn't all that big a deal. It was very interesting. Those were wild times. There was a lot of free this and free that, and after the abolitionist movement shifted uh, after they were successful. Lincoln freed the slaves. And then after the Civil War, the people that were active in that also were very active in all kinds of freedoms that were completely forbidden before, one of them being free love. So uh, so that was really how they seduced, <laughs> seduced um, Elizabeth. But so she told, so she confessed to her husband, and he was kind of all right with it. He was certainly doing his own thing. And then um, the uh, the writer, I believe it's Victoria Woodhull. There was a um, an, a weekly called Claflin and Woodhull's Weekly, and she was notorious and would publish all kinds of things and would say anything and was all about free love and out outraging people. And, um, and everybody was writing her letters like, you are a monstrous woman, things like that. And she wrote in a column one time, uh, I don't know why everyone's so upset with me. Beecher and Tilton are doing it right now. And so it kind of went public. And that, yeah, and that meant that Theodore felt obliged to file suit against Beecher. So he sued Beecher for criminal affection. And there was a six-month trial in New York City. And at the time, of course, there were hundreds of daily newspapers. And every single one of them carried this every day. And for six months, this trial went on. And by the time Elizabeth was put on the stand, she could not bear she was a shy religious woman and she just she was just mortified and couldn't bear to accuse Beecher in public so she denied it and of course that ruined uh, the Tilton family um, it ruined their lives 
she was excommunicated from Beecher's church. Um, and she was, she was deeply religious. So this was uh, just a devastating blow to her. The, the Tilton marriage broke up. Theodore went to Paris and started writing romance novels. And Elizabeth was left in Brooklyn on her own. And the brethren who were really, they were two kinds of sect. There was the open brethren and the closed. Closed was self-explanatory. The open brethren were open to people who would be considered dangerous sinners, and Elizabeth certainly would be one of those. They invited her in, and so they gave her a place and a community, and that's how uh, my family connected with her. And um, and they stayed friends. Agnes and, and Florence, Agnes's mother, and my grandparents were friends, really, until everybody died, really. Um, I remember being a kid and hearing um, from my mother, oh, dear, we've heard, uh, we've heard about Agnes's uh, passing in, uh, in the desert out in California. So it's a lifelong friendship with my family. And as a result, Agnes painted... Um, she painted portraits of my grandparents and my mother and my uncle. They were children. Um, I have in my house, uh, I'm very grateful to have those portraits. I have the painting of Agnes's windmill studio on Long Island. I also have a couple of desert scenes after she moved to the desert. Um, and they're much treasured by me. And, uh, and my family. Um, so I, I guess that's probably enough on that, right? <laughs> that's so fascinating, though. I didn't realize. So so the grandmother who's presented as so religious in this novel, that this is the, the woman who was involved with, um, with Beecher. Yes, yes. That is such a... <laughs> so in a sense, Agnes is sort of the, the quiet member of the family. <laughs> Well, Agnes is the quiet member, and she was shy by temperament, but this scandal, I do believe, shadowed her whole life. Actually, she said so. She said so in journal entries. It shadowed her whole life. There was no, no one was allowed in their house. Um, they stayed isolated as best they could. There were never, never was a newspaper allowed in their house. Um her mother had a music school, um, which there were students trooping in and out, but there were never any guests, never friends. And, um, and that was a pall, I think, over her life. I really, really do. And, um, and that's why I go into it quite a bit in the book, because it really did shadow her. And um, temperamentally, I think, it, I think it was crippling. And my my inspiration is that how do you then turn away from that and produce works of exceptional art? And, and that's what she did. And she continued to do that throughout her life, no matter what the discouragement. She just kept going, and I admire that enormously. So are the personalities based on family stories then as they're depicted in the book? Or what other materials did you have to work with? Uh, yeah, they're fa some of them are based on family stories. Um, my mother would talk about being in that windmill and get, she was 10 when she was painted. 
and um, and that Agnes was a great storyteller. She worked wonderfully with children. She painted lots of children, and she would. Mother said she would tell stories, and you can see in my mother's expression. She's she's kind of looking not directly at the painter, but she's wrapped. She's listening very closely to something. So it, it really is interesting. And and she called. She was called uh, Agnes. Was called Aunt Agnes um, by my mother and my uncle, and um, and was invited after her own mother's death in 1920. She spent that Christmas that year in New Jersey with my grandparents great-grandparents and grandparents' family. And there's a lovely picture of that um, where she's off to one side. She's not part of the family. And so I've always felt, looking at that and knowing what I knew about her temperament, that she always kept herself apart, that she did not um, easily join in anywhere. And that doesn't mean she didn't have friends. She did have friends. She had lots of friends. But for her, solitude was the place where she was most at home, and solitude was what she sought out her whole life. She left New York City um, in 1920. Uh, After her mother's death, she up and left. And just as things were really beginning to cook in New York, she had been part of a big exhibition called the Introspective. She had like something like 18 paintings in that, um, maybe even more. I can't remember exactly right this second. But she was, she was up and coming. And what did she do? She went off to Long Island, um, not just for summers. She stayed and spent her winters studying, trying to, trying to find her way to her own abstract expression. And that, that became her work. Um, and, and her work, the work of her heart, really, her day job was painting portraits and then landscapes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I don't know, maybe I'm uniquely ignorant, but to be honest, until I read your book, I had never heard of Agnes Pelton. Um, I just thought it was a really interesting book about an artist when your publicist first approached me. And so I, you know, after I read it, I looked up some of the paintings that are mentioned in there, and and there's I found the exhibit, which of course is closed at the moment because everything is closed because of COVID nineteen. But some of the pictures are online. Um, it's supposed to be at the Whitney Museum in New York, and I guess it is. It's just that nobody can get in. So tell us about Agnes as an artist, um, just for people. I mean, assume that there might be a few other people. That, like me, who haven't heard of her because she spent so much of her time outside of the major art venues? Well, you are not alone at all. Um, actually, most people have not heard of her. Um, over over the years of writing this, um, I would go summers to uh, my alumni writing conference. We, we always hold one 
it's canceled this year for guess why. Um, but, but we graduates would get together and what, the entertainment of the evening was always readings. And I would read each year something, you know, something, you know, where kind of where I was in the book and people in unfailingly would say, I have never heard of this artist. And I just looked her up and they'd hold up their phone and there was a spectacular image by Agnes and everyone, she's the artist that everyone is excited to discover and no one has heard of. And, and typically, you know, this is kind of a oddball thing when this COVID-19 hit and my launch is now virtual um, everything, my book tour, I was, we were going to, uh, Boston and then New York to, I couldn't wait to see the paintings at the Whitney. I was so excited about that. Uh, I may get there. Um, it may still ha- be open before it closes. It closed, the, the museum closed the day the show opened. It was it's bizarre. And I thought, oh boy, this is Agnes's karma, if you will. Every time she was ready to take off, there was some event completely out of her control that she had nothing to do with, but World War One, the stock market crash, World War Two, all those things um, interfered with what was a trajectory upwards for her. And so she, again... <laughs> This is, it's happening again. And, um, and the good news for all of us is that we have so much more technology now and that we can still see and appreciate some of the work. Um, I really hope to get to see it both in New York and in Palm Springs, where it will go next in the fall. So she started out almost as a a kind of pre-Raphaelite painter, right? And then she morphs into this person who is uh, the only person I can think of who's even close uh, that listeners might recognize would be Georgia O'Keeffe. But there's definitely much, much more color in Agnes's paintings than I think of with Georgia O'Keeffe. Well, she she started really her start her start is modernist at at the very beginning because her study at the Pratt Institute was with Arthur Wesley Dow, who revolution, I mean, there's so many exciting, interesting um, congruences with modern art and her life, which is really why I wanted to do this as a book and a a full life book Um, because she studies with Dow who revolutionized the teaching of art he focuses on composition and he has a famous book that was reprinted by my old employer, the university of California press and is available, which is a fascinating uh, study on how to teach students who are learning to be art teachers, which is what, what they did. Um, George O'Keefe, of course, also, studied with Dow 10 years later and became an art teacher. Uh, Agnes was never comfortable teaching, so she just, she tried it once. Dow invited her to his summer school for art in Ipswich, Mass., 
and she went, she was 20 or 21 at the time and she looked 14 and, um, the, the women that were taking the class were not at all interested in listening to anything she said and wouldn't listen to her or do what she told them or any of that. And she just wasn't interested in doing that and hated it and said, that's it, I'm not teaching. Um, but, but her background is that modernist approach. And then in 1910, she went to Rome for a year studying painting with Hamilton Easterfield at the British Academy. And that was probably more traditional, even though he also was very much, uh, very sympathetic to modernism. And, um, and it was he and his friends who who got her connected with the people that put the Armory show together in New York. Um, So really what she was doing, she was classically trained, yes, and able to do anything. She never abandoned that because I think for her, the, the abstracts were personal uh, personal expressions, and she was looking for something. She was looking for something. And I think my personal belief is that she was not comfortable sharing it uh, uh, widely until she felt, ah, this is it. So I don't think, I mean, Georgia O'Keefe had the good fortune. Her, she, had, she would send work to a close friend of hers. And... Um, and that friend in New York, O'Keefe was in Texas teaching and making these, making the famous charcoal drawings that she made. And her friend took, without her permission, took those drawings to Alfred Stieglitz in New York, who had just opened the 291 gallery. And he put them on the wall without permission. And blammo, there it was. And O'Keefe was thrilled, but, you know, a little pissed but gave him permission. And temperamentally, she was very, uh, I mean, good grief, he photographed her nude and published, you know, I mean, there's such a difference in temperament there. But they are both trained with the same uh, sensibility. There was there was an exhibit in, I think, 2008, which was just one of the best things ever. It was down at the, uh, it was down at the Orange County Museum of Art in Newport Beach, and um, my wife and I flew down for the day to see it because it was just spectacular, in which the museum had paired Agnes Pelton with Georgia O'Keeffe, and then two other artists, Agnes Martin with Florence Miller Pierce, were paired. But the pictures, it, it was just stunning. They put them up together, and the paintings that you're seeing as photographic images now, many of them are very large. And O'Keefe painted very large as well. And so you're seeing these paintings, and they are using essentially the same palette, to some degree the same structure, the same composition. Their last paintings are... So close to the same, it was just, it was almost like, made me think of a tuning fork, you know, when you bang a tuning fork, it trembles and trembles and trembles, and just at the very last when it's coming into that sound, the trembling is almost nothing, and then it stops, 
And that's what I thought of when I looked at those paintings. They were just beautiful. The book, if anyone is interested, is called Illumination. And the subtitle is The Paintings of Georgia O'Keeffe, Agnes Pelton, Agnes Martin, and Florence Miller Pierce, published by Merrill. You know, I was fascinated because two of the influences on Agnes Pelton were Madame Blavatsky, who was a spiritualist, and uh, Vasily Kandinsky. Tell us, uh, how did she combine those? I mean, they're very different um, ways of looking at the world. Well, they are different. Um, I, I just, I kind of, this is, I kind of threw them in together because I, they, they were very important to her. But there was, there was so much information <laughs> to try to digest and condense um, with this. Um, she read everything. She spent her winters in the windmill reading and studying, and Blavatsky was a major one. Also, she studied um, Jung. She studied. Uh, she studied a lot of those uh, people that that, frankly, I didn't have the time or the the strength to go read through myself. I tried very hard to read what I could to to really understand what it was that she was studying and reading. Kandinsky was always major for her because his book concerning the spiritual and art was published in translation in the United States in the 1910s. And now I'm blanking on the date that it was published here, but she, she got a hold of that book and, and did study it. And Kandinsky was really the first to kind of codify the idea that you could create a spiritual experience in the viewer of a painting, if you followed certain formula, like like in music, we have you know we have a major chord in music signifies something sunny and positive. A minor chord is used for a dirge or something dark. And Kandinsky um, assigned colors a value. He assigned symbols value. He, he showed in his own work how you begin to arrange compositions so that if the viewer is so inclined, they can and might have the spiritual experience that he is trying to express. And that was her charge always. She was a mystic. She had visions. And what she would try to do is she always, her, her routine was to meditate in the afternoon, late afternoon, especially when she got to the desert and would often have these visions that she would then scribble down in her journal and try to recreate. And the vision would be there and she would try to remember it the best she could. And then her task, would, which sometimes would take years, was to put that into a painting and to create for the viewer a sense of what she felt when she herself saw it. So there are three things. There's, she did learn a lot from Blavatsky and Kandinsky, but she also had these visions. And, um, and the paintings, when you see them in person, as I hope everyone gets to do at some point, because photographing paintings, especially, 
always, always reduces the visual impact. Pelton's paintings are luminous. They are. She painted them in layers. Sometimes I think she must have painted a layer of gold to get some of the luminosity that she gets. But you always have a sense of great depth, which is many layers, and of of color that is vibrating. And that's what she's after. And she used to call her, her paintings little windows to, a, to another dimension. And she invited people in to, those, to see those little windows. And in inviting them in, she wasn't making a judgment about what people ought to see. She was, she was offering that. And if you were so inclined, wonderful. If not, all right, that's okay, because that was her work. It was really a, a, um, a religious practice in a way. She, she, it was her vocation to do that. Now, she had to make a living. So because she could do it all, her first, uh, her first living was made, and I do believe my grandparents, my grandfather in particular, his portrait was the first one she did, and she did it in New York City in her studio in New York, and um, and then used that one to show people that she could do it. And so her first um, her summers in Long Island uh, were were portrait painting times, and that's and she got many commissions. There were a lot of rich people, still are. Um, in Southampton, and um, and that's what she did. And then uh, she decided to, she traveled too. So she went to uh, Taos in New Mexico to visit with Mabel Dodge. She went to South Pasadena in California. Um, this was, there, 1919 was the Taos trip, but in the 20s, she went to Hawaii. She went to South Pasadena. Um, all of it was about learning, learning, learning for herself. And, um, and once she got to the desert, she started supporting herself with paint. beautiful desert scenes. They are. They're lovely. But they are not what we see in the abstract. That's a different world, which is what, how she felt it was. And she was in an artist colony for a while. That's what originally took her to the desert, right? Yes. Yes, the colony was this strange little group in South Pasadena called the Hive, the Glass Hive. And it was run by a guy named um, William Comfort. And he, he, was, he did all these writings. He, everybody was delving and delving. And if we think of the 1960s as times of searching. Certainly the 1920s were absolutely times of searching. And in a, in a sort of similar way, because people had a lot, people had money then, this was before the crash and the depression, people had money and could take the time to search out the spiritual. It wasn't considered frivolous. So Comfort did writings, and, but she went to this colony and um, and was part of it, even though she was a little uncomfortable with that. So she moved to a house of her own nearby and um, and painted there. Um, but that was a, a time of great um, 
great focus for her and support. She got a lot of support from the other people there, made close friends that lasted her life. Comfort's daughter, Jane, was her close, close friend for many, many, many years. So what would you like readers to take away from the Pelton Papers? I, I would like readers to, I would love readers to get a sense of the place from which Agnes painted, which is a place of serenity and openness. And so I have tried to kind of create that with the language of the book. Um, I want people to be entertained by it. I want them to be interested. I want them to feel Agnes as a companion. And I want them to get a sense of, of who she was as an artist, which was a person who surrendered to her own talent and persevered through many, many, many difficulties for which I admire her enormously. And I'd like them to admire her too. This novel releases on April 7th, uh, even though, as you mentioned, the, <laughs> all of the, uh, the book tours and everything are now virtual. Are you already working on something new? Oh, well, I'm very interested in Agnes's mother. Um, Florence Pelton, uh, who was the oldest daughter, who was the person who told her father, she saw um, Beecher and her mother together, and she told her father about it. And her father was an unstable rageaholic, if you will, and um, and he was kind of crazy. But she she told her father, and then uh, all hell broke loose in their lives. And Florence um, was a very strong person. There's a photo of her in the first catalog, her holding Agnes's lapels when Agnes was a sulky teenager. And you see Florence as a formidable presence. She was a, she reminded me of my own grandmother, uh, a, a fairly portly, solid person of great strength and fortitude. And I'm very interested in, she went to Europe to get away from the scandal and there is where she met and married Agnes's father. And that intrigues me enormously. Yes, I mean, these. this is, it's very obvious in this novel too that the, this is a family of very strong uh, surviving women and kind of weak and absent men, frankly. Um, we didn't have time to get into it here, but maybe you can come back and talk to me with the Florence novel and we can get into it there. <laughs> okay. See you in 20 years, Carolyn. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Mari. I wish you happy well, writing. thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Mari Coates about the Pelton Papers. Find out more about her at www.maricoates.com. That's M-A-R-I-C-O-A-T-E-S. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com 
where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.